Happy Saturday. It is July 9th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Ashley? Yes? How's your vacation going so far? We're still on vacation. I love it. Yes, we're taking our annual two weeks off, and we're trying not to work. My inbox is full, but I'm trying to ignore it. Hope you guys are getting my out of office, and if not, apologies. There you go. I was thinking that you've been to London. I've been to Italy in this time, but we've got a terrific story. If people are still looking to plan a last-minute getaway and places that everyone's talking about how everything's crowded this summer, but we've got Marcia De Sanctis in this week's issue, who has, I think discovered a lesser traveled gem that sounds like it's a real steal right now, right? These are the kind of travel stories I live for. It has it all. Architecture, food, great lodgings, and low prices. UNESCO World Cultural Heritage Site. Yes, indeedy. It's got everything. For those of you that are seeking to go somewhere new this summer, we have an incredible idea from our own Marcia DeSanctis, who is not only a wonderful contributor to Airmail, but also a, let's just call her what she is, an icon in the realm of travel writing and essay writing as well. She's the author of A Hard Place to Leave, Stories from a Restless Life, which just came out earlier this year and has been named one of the best books of 2022 by Vogue which is really saying something. We are so happy to have her here. We love Marsha. We love her writing. And she has recently been to Krakow, Poland, and is here to tell us all about this somewhat unlikely tourist destination. Welcome, Marsha. Thanks so much. Thanks, Michael and Ashley. Good to see you. So, Marsha, tell us, first of all, what took you to Poland? I was in Europe and was trying to figure out I mean, when you go to Europe, you think, well, there must be something I want to see. So I went over to Krakow from Dublin. What I saw was a very beautiful city that seemed to be suffering from a crisis of perception. And so the war really hadn't spilled onto the streets of Krakow. And so what I decided to do really was try to do a travel story and say how a war, how a perception of something can really change world opinion and see that a place like Krakow is a very popular tourist destination, but had actually been decimated by the war that actually wasn't in Krakow at all. Marcia, when I was reading your story, it reminded me in a sense of all of the travel stories about Italy that we saw coming out in the summer of 2020 and 2021, like an embarrassment of riches, really, culturally and artistically speaking, that no one was tapping into because of this climate of, let's say, fear or uncertainty. Did Krakow strike you in a similar way? Yeah, absolutely. It struck in a similar way because as somebody told me over there, I think it was my tour guide, he said, well, people don't understand because they're not here. I think the reality on the ground is usually a very different story. And of course, there's so many people suffering in the tourist industry. And I saw that in Krakow from this woman who said we were getting 10 visitors a day and usually they were getting 800. Marsha, can you talk as well? I think one of the great undiscovered facts about or not known facts about is Krakow. It wasn't destroyed in World War II. It's one of the Polish cities that retains its sort of like 19th and 18th and 17th century trend, but it's also a UNESCO World Heritage Site, right? And what, can you just talk about the cultural treasures that are there and the cultural riches that are there? Yeah, it's one of those cities that, I don't know, the best way I can describe it is, do you ever have this kind of dream of Europe? Like, what does Europe look like? And I think that Krakow is kind of that city. It's cobblestone squares and giant open cafes where they serve hot chocolate and champagne 
24-7. And there are all kinds of fortified walls. So kind of the old city is contained within these walls. And there's the giant cathedral on a hill called Vavel. And there's this ancient university called the Jagiellonian University. And there's medieval towers. And actually, the town hall tower in the center of town is 800 years old. And St. Mary's Basilica is also from, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but I'm going to say from the 14th century. And then the other side of town, also in the old town. But so there's kind of the center of town, which is Cloth Hall, which I think Cloth Hall is from maybe the 13th century. It's an old marketplace and it still exists. And you walk inside and they're selling spiced wine and candied nuts and things like that. So it's really a magnificent city. It is so iconic and I would say paradigmatic, a paradigm of kind of Central Europe of just medieval stone and brick and towers and spires. And yeah, it's very, very beautiful. I think we now know what we need to do, Michael. We have our march orders. If we need to know where to stay in Krakow, Marsha spoke with many of the general managers of the top hotels in town, which look, by the way, spectacular. And first of all, it's a long overdue trip for me. I've never been, but also it's a great place to go this summer as hotels in Europe are almost impossible to book in many of the major capital cities, London, Paris, Madrid, Milan. It's crazy. That's a really good point, actually. And I think it, I, I would recommend it because there's also just amazing things to see. There are 11 five-star hotels in Krakow and each one is more beautiful than the next. One of them is called the H15 Palace and it's in the old, I think it's the Lubomirsky Palace, which is an old aristocratic family. And it's just retained many of its old structures, the archways and underground, there's columns and just the stone structure that's 500 years old, but has been updated in an extremely chic way and these voluptuous drapes and ancient frescoes that they've kept. And there's another one called the Bonarowski Palace, which is right on the main square, only 16 rooms and has the longest crystal chandelier in the world, I think, because of course, Swarovski was a Polish family and a Polish manufacturer of crystals. And it's 75 feet long and you're really just looking up six stories at this magnificent thing. And it also has just these beautiful frescoes and fireplaces and stonework, but really beautiful velvets and silks. It, they're just so beautiful. And they have great restaurants attached. The H15 Palace has a beautiful spa. And yeah, I think there are definitely deals to be found there because so many people have canceled their trips. Marcia, you are always on the road. I know you're going to Zambia, you're going to Egypt in the fall, but where are your summer travels taking you? I've talked about this a lot lately because I've talked a lot about my travels just in the context of my book and have always loved the idea of going back places and kind of returns and having kind of a built-in narrative by going somewhere and going back. But now I really just feel like I want to go to a bunch of new places. I just feel like the world is so big and there's so many places I haven't been. So I've never been to Egypt, so I'm going there in the fall. Never been to Zambia either. <laughs> I'm going there in a few weeks. In the meantime, just doing some domestic stuff. But 
Yeah. Well, a lot to look forward to. I think Michael and I can both say with a lot of confidence that one of our, one of the best things to come out of this end of the pandemic for us on a personal level is to have you back on the road again and your beautiful stories on the pixels of airmail, if you will. So we're so happy to have you back and out there and on an airplane. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks for running this story on Krakow. I do think it's an extremely underappreciated place, but I think it's a place that people should know about. It's a very meditative place, but it's also one of those places like Paris that you can walk for miles and miles and kind of feel like you really accomplished something. World-class food, magnificent architectural structures, and just people that really, really want you there. All right, consider it done. We're happy to oblige. (laughs) Good, good, good. And for those of you who might be at home this summer or need something good to read on the airplane or on the boat or wherever you happen to be, do pick up Marsha's wonderful book. It came out in May and it's called A Hard Place to Leave, Stories from a Restless Life. And it's excellent and can't rave about it enough. So enjoy. Oh, thanks so much, Ashley. And thanks, Michael. Thanks, Marsha. Thanks. Safe travels. Thank you. Michael, we have our marching orders. Let's just get to booking right now. <laughs> I'm ready. Airmail uh, offsite, perhaps? Mm, look at you thinking ambitiously. I like it. I like it. Okay, cool. Well, all right. Now that we've got our travel matters sorted, obviously our top priority, what else do we have? What else should we talk about here today? Speaking of Poland and World War II and heritage, and it just sparked my mind that one of my favorite stories that we've run in a long time is in this week's issue. It's by a writer named Henry Schlesinger. And it's a story that I might sort of put under the file of cloaks and daggers. And it is about Sir Hardy Amys, who I'm sure you know Ashley. He was dressmaker to the Queen, ran one of the great design houses in London. He was also a very accomplished wardrobe person. He did the he did the wardrobes for 2001, A Space Odyssey, among other films. But as Henry reveals in this week's issue, he also, it seems, was a head of a secret espionage unit operating behind German lines in World War II. This isn't the stuff of a movie. I don't know what is. I love it. Yeah, this is a great story. And I mean, you can practically see it coming to life. Have you already done the casting in your mind? I have. I see Colin Firth, who just seems natural for this. How about you? That's so interesting. I was also thinking Anthony Hopkins could be good, but I'm having a Hopkins moment right now. So, Well, I like that he worked, Amy's worked for secret division that Churchill started called the SOE, which stood for the Special Operations Executive. And they were tasked with, as Churchill said, to basically go into Europe and create havoc. But it was unofficially known as the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. So, and as I said, their task was to, from Churchill, was to, quote, go set Europe ablaze. And apparently, Amy's helped do that during the war. And I just think it's one of those fascinating, undiscovered stories. Amy's, for most of his life, denied any association with it. He was very tight-lipped, sort of took his vows very seriously. But just an amazingly accomplished guy who had a hand in so many things. So it's just, if you're looking for a lovely, riveting weekend read as you lie there in your hammock this weekend, take this one on. Great idea. By the way, speaking of reading, did you read this story in the issue this week about cancel culture and how it's coming for children's literature? (laughs) As a mother of two children, can you parse this one out for us? So it turns out that children's book publishers are among the most vigilant, if vigilant is the right word, about potentially offensive content in children's books, which of course makes sense. But there's an author named Anthony Horowitz. Horowitz has written over 40 books, including three of the James Bond novels. Horowitz recently turned in his latest children's book to the publisher, and the novel is aimed at 8 to 12-year-olds about the world's 
worst detectives, which sounds interesting. But Horowitz received this back and he was completely shocked because his publisher essentially wanted it all rewritten because he says that they were afraid that he would be canceled for the content of it, which I get it. On one hand, we have to be really careful what these children are exposed to. I mean, I find that I have been reading classic novels from things that I read as a child to my children, and I'm kind of shocked by some of the content in them. But that being said, there probably is some sort of a happy medium for all of this. But I actually came up with a list of children's book characters that I think should be canceled. Would you like to hear them? Bring it on. All right, let's start with Captain Underpants. Okay, this is like the worst series ever, and my son could not get enough of it a couple of years ago, and thankfully he's moved on, but that's really obnoxious. I'll also go for the bad guys. Really boring. Not much happens there. Another series I could do without, although apparently the movie is very good. Who knew? Michael, we could go on. A lot of children's literature is pretty arduous, to be honest. It can be difficult to find quality stuff. It can, but you're reminding me that we have a story from Ash Carter this week about a long, kind of unrecognized uh, we call Master Trickster, who wrote many children's books through the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And Ash recently rediscovered him. His name was Remy Charlip. And Ash fell in love with him, looking for books to read. His son sort of did some digging around. And lo and behold, the guy was influential across so many things, set design, theater design. But one of the crazy things he also was really good at was choreography. And he, in fact, invented the, in 1926, he created something called the airmail dance. So lo and behold, he's got a connection with airmail here now. This is one of those great discoveries of someone who'd faded away a little bit, but then thanks to Ash's masterful story, is getting the recognition they deserve now. Let's bring it back. So there is one classic musical that has not been canceled, or at least not yet. And it is, of course, one of my favorites, Singing in the Rain. Would you like me to sing? I would love that. Singing in the rain. Just sing in the rain. Yes, you can. I can't believe I didn't have a career on Broadway, Michael. I can't believe it. But Doug McGrath is here. Doug McGrath actually has had a career on Broadway. Love him. Doug is a majestic writer. He is also a film director. And he has had a career on Broadway. He wrote the book for Beautiful, the Carol King musical, which if you've seen it, you know how terrific that book is. Multi-talented, as I said, director, book writer, and author. And he's here because he believes that Singing in the Rain, which is the greatest musical Hollywood ever made. And he's going to tell you why. So let's bring him on. Welcome, Doug. Okay, Doug, it's been 70 years since Singing in the Rain splashed its way through theaters, as you wrote, and it might just be the greatest movie musical ever made. What made it so? I'll tell you, there are a series of things in it that all the musical numbers are spectacular. They're just great. There's the charming, there's the magnificent. It runs the whole gamut in terms of what it offers in terms of musical pleasures. But at the very heart of what makes Singing in the Rain so great is that it has arguably the greatest script ever written for a movie musical. And that script is by Betty Comden and Adolph Green. And I'll just make this one point, which is that the script is so good that you could take the songs out. Not that you'd want to, because they're so great, but you could take the songs out and it would still be a spectacular romantic comedy. And Doug, what was the impulse behind the film? I think we all agree with you. It's a great, great script. But where did the idea come from? Who shaped it? Was it the screenwriter's idea or was it something that came out of the studio? It came out of the studio, but it principally came from Arthur Freed, the most celebrated producer of movie musicals in history. Freed, before he was a producer, had been a songwriter with a man named Herb Nacio Brown. Possibly Nacio Herb Brown, but anyway, those are the three names he had. Brown was the last one. And Freed and Brown wrote a lot of songs in the teens and 20s and 30s. And Freed had had great success as a movie producer 
producing, among other things, Wizard of Oz, Meet Me in St. Louis, Easter Parade. And two of his big hits were Easter Parade, which was based on the songs of Irving Berlin, and An American in Paris, which was based on the songs of the Gershwins. And they'd been so successful that he thought, I'd like to find a third catalog to use to make a movie musical out of. And he thought, how about mine? So he brought in Betty Comden and Adolph Green and said, look, here are the songs. Figure out a story. And for the longest time, Betty Comden used to tell people, all we knew is that we were going to have them. And, and he wanted it to be called Singing in the Rain because that was the biggest hit song they ever had. And she said, all we ever knew for the longest time was that the movie was, was going to be about somebody. And at some point it would be raining and that person would be singing in it. But as they thought about the songs, which were largely written in the 20s and early 30s, their impulse to set it in the modern age in the early 50s vanished. And they decided instead to set it when the songs were written, which is in this monumental time in film history, which was the transition out of silent film and into sound. And once they had that premise, it's a divine comic premise. They could just milk it in so many different ways. Now, Dad, like so many pleasures in life, there were a few deceptions that were executed behind the scenes in Singing in the Rain to make it the musical of excellent quality across the board that we know and love. Can you tell us about a few of those small little tweaks? Yes, there is a double level of deception in the movie. So in the movie itself, Debbie Reynolds, plays the character Kathy Selden. And she is going to, in the movie, dub the voice of Gene Hagen's character, the notorious Lena Lamont, who has a a tin voice. And as you watch the movie, it appears that Debbie Reynolds is standing at the microphone and is dubbing Gene Hagen's voice. But in fact, Stanley Donnan, one of the two directors along with Gene Kelly, thought that Debbie Reynolds' voice wasn't pleasing enough for that. So in fact, Gene Hagen dubs Debbie Reynolds dubbing Gene Hagen. I just find that hilarious. And all the times I've seen it, until I learned that, it just, I always thought, gosh, Debbie Reynolds has such a, <laughs> such a cultured voice. And in fact, it shows Gene Hagen's range, because in the movie, you just hear her as this honking shrew. And in fact, it's her own elegant voice. Doug, do you remember the first time that you saw Singing in the Rain? I do. Funnily enough, I saw it in Paris when I was 16 years old. I was in Paris for a fall term, and I went to the movies all the time. They show lots and lots of classic American films, and I remember seeing it, and I remember thinking, well, I wish I hadn't waited this long to see this, because I want to see it again and again, and I've, I've kept my word to myself. I keep seeing it. You're not the only person who fell in love with it in Paris. You have a wonderful anecdote of if we need any more validation on the impact this movie has made, no less than Francois Truffaut fell in love with it, right? Truffaut loved the movie so much that when he was at a party in Paris where Betty Comden and Adolph Green happened to be, he rushed across the room and grabbed them by the hands and hugged them and told them how much he loved the movie. And he confessed that he and the French film director Alain René used to frequently go see the movie at a theater where it ran for months and months at a time. He said he knew it frame by frame. So we've got this marvelous cast, Gene Kelly, Sid Charisse, Debbie Reynolds, Donald O'Connor, <laughs> Gene Hagen. Is there anyone that you don't like in this cast? Every diamond has a flaw. Is there anything that's sort of like, eh, you know what? There's one thing I think I'd like to change in this. And I say this to you as a creative man yourself. You know, the person I don't love in the movie is the guy who plays the studio head. I hope his family isn't listening, but he's the least magical of the group. And one of the things I point out in the piece is that they made two casting mistakes originally that mercifully they changed. Originally, they wanted Ann Miller for the Debbie Reynolds part. And Ann Miller has her own distinct kind of talent, but it seems much too big for the appealing and winsome Kathy Selden. She's <laughs> she's more of a, a stick of dynamite as opposed to a nice little birthday candle. And then in the part that Donald O'Connor plays so brilliantly, they originally wanted Freed, Arthur Freed originally wanted Oscar Levant to play that part. As I mentioned in the article, I'm not a big 
Oscar Levant fan myself, but whether I was or I wasn't, it would have entirely changed the movie because in getting Donald O'Connor, who is almost as great a dancer as Gene Kelly, which is a very high compliment indeed, you couldn't have had the the dazzling dance duets that you have between Kelly and O'Connor and then in Good Morning with Debbie Reynolds as well. So in that case, the movie gods intervened to life-saving effect for the film. Well, speaking of dancing, there's a lot of you said duets, but it's probably best known for Kelly's solo singing the title song, Singing in the Rain, which it's the movie magic as it's done on a sound set. And you've had these terrific details about how Kelly did a walk. Can you just tell us about how he did that? Well, so that whole street was constructed for this. And then he walked around with the art director and with the people that needed to know this. And he, this is obviously before it's raining. And he had a big piece of chalk and he would circle places on the set, on the sidewalk, where he wanted the set people to hollow out little holes so that once the rain started, those holes would fill up with water, which would allow him at the proper moment in the choreography to splash his feet in them. So those splashes were not left to chance. Everything, even the raindrops, carefully planned out. And then, of course, the hilarious thing was that on the day, the day before they were going to shoot, they did a big dress rehearsal. And they had all the rain machines ready to go. And this was at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. So they start action. The rain starts coming out of the pipes of overhead. He starts singing and dancing. And as the number goes on, the rain becomes weaker and weaker and weaker until it's just spitting. Then they, finally they had to cut, cut. What's going on? Well, as it turned out, this was 5 in the afternoon. And MGM was in Culver City. And in the middle of the summer, which is when they were shooting this, at five o'clock when people came home, they turned their sprinklers on. <laughs> so there was a drain in the town water system on all that water. So they realized they couldn't shoot at five o'clock in the afternoon sometimes. So they arranged it to shoot at a more water heavy time. That's a great detail. Doug, as a filmmaker yourself, you have a lot of experience in this. Is there a certain scene in the film that strikes you as like an incredible feat of, I mean, perhaps it's the one you just spoke about, but are there any other moments in the film that strike you as just truly extraordinary from a filmmaking perspective? Yes, there really is. Okay, so originally when I saw the film, I loved the movie, but I remember thinking that the Broadway ballet at the end, this big, like almost 15-minute number, seemed weird. The movie they're making is set in 17th century France. The Broadway ballet was set in 1950-something. It's modern. None of the characters. It didn't seem to make any sense. It was very well done, but I kept thinking, this this is just odd. Well, that's just how stupid I was. Because every time I've seen it since, the extraordinary imagination and artistry that is at work in, in that sequence just continues to reward new viewing and continues to dazzle. And then you think, you know what? It doesn't matter that it doesn't exactly fit the plot because it is such an extraordinary display of talent. And they have their own funny way of using it. You know, at the end, they've pitched this idea. They say, we want to do this modern ballet and they pitch it to the studio head, the actor whose name I forget, whom I don't like very much. And then you go into the number and you see everything in the most extraordinary detail. And when they come out at the end, I just can't picture it. If that's not a perfect studio headline, I don't know what is. So that to me, even though it's not my most sentimental favorite, you see what extraordinary work went into it. It was originally budgeted for something like $80,000. And by the time they realized what they would need to make it as great as it was, it was $600,000. And that's how committed MGM and particularly Arthur Freed and Gene Kelly and Stanley Donnan were to the quality of what they were doing. 
Well, Doug, I mean, especially during these crazy times that we're living in, where there is so much sadness and dissent and disruption, I think singing in the rain just, it feels like such a welcome respite from all of that. And its value is something that just brings joy to people. It's, it's so unadulterated and more of a pleasure than ever, really. So we thank you so much for bringing us this incredible behind the scenes story on what made it so and why it still endures 70 years later. I couldn't have put that better myself. It is a true balm to watch it, not a bomb. <laughs> a balm. B-A-L-M. <laughs> yes, I might have chosen a, a more ear-friendly word. It gives a glorious feeling. That's it. That's it. Doug, we so appreciate it. We always love reading your stories and we always love speaking with you. So we can't wait until the next one. And until then, we wish you a very happy summer. Thank you. Same to you guys. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Doug. Take care. Okay. I would go see a revival of that, Michael. What about you? Oh, one of my favorites. Always. Gene Kelly. Sid Charisse, come on. Have you seen The Music Man yet on Broadway? I haven't. You? No, it's supposed to be fantastic, though. 76 trombones led the big parade. Da-da-da-da-da! Okay, I'm going to spare you guys my singing for the rest of the episode. Sorry. Well, on that note, sounds like we should go to some recommends, Ashley. Ooh, yes, indeed. This comes courtesy of one of our contributors, Max Lakin, who has a story in this week's issue about a new show opening at the Albertina Museum in Vienna. So, if you find yourself traveling in Europe this summer or anywhere nearby, why not stop at the Albertina to see a marvelous exhibition of the painter Francesco Clemente's self-portraits? And, just as a general reminder, wherever you find yourself this summer, be sure and check in with our highly informed, expertly curated Arts Intel Report, which is always filled with the perfect suggestions for what to do, see, and hear wherever you are in the world. You can read it in every issue. And I just say, be sure to sign up for the Invaluable Week in Culture newsletter for more up-to-the-minute ideas. And you, Ashley? Okay, so, Michael, it's a bit of a departure for me because it's a serious topic and it's a bit of nonfiction, but it turns out that not only is there a big tobacco, it turns out there's also a big fish. And we have the inside story behind a fascinating new book called Salmon Wars in the issue this week. And this book is written by Catherine Collins and Douglas France. And they take on, I guess what we could call it, the salmon industrial complex. For these authors, it's their version of big tobacco. It's totally fascinating. Turns out that 90% of the salmon consumed around the world today is Atlantic salmon that was raised in floating feedlots that can hold up to a million fish. And these are generally floating along the very ecologically fragile coastlines of the US, Canada, Norway, Scotland, and elsewhere. Salmon farming is now a $20 billion a year business. Who knew? And the title is provocative, but for good reason. This book really tackles the environmental impacts of salmon farming. It has become the fish that is the most popular fish probably in many parts of the world, certainly in my household. And and the story behind it is much more complicated than we've been led to believe so far. So it's a fascinating book, not only about ecological and farming issues, but also about the political issues and the marketing of this fish that have turned it into something that has such profound impacts on the environment, marine life, and as well as consumer health. Yeah, sounds fascinating. Thank you. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitale. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and 
share and subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thanks again for joining us.